Hi, welcome back. Um, I was uh, going through books uh, lately, putting them away and um, organizing books I'd read to learn on different topics. And one of them was by Susan Casey, and it was called The Wave. If you haven't stumbled on it, if you haven't, you know, read it, it definitely makes for a good read. Um, and I enjoyed it very much. And uh, as I discovered uh, the book, I learned more on the ocean, which is one of the key things here <laughs> and uh, for me. And uh, as I followed a little more on her work, I said, oh, hang on. I just stumbled on an article in the New York Times as she's put out another book. This new book, because she has voices in the ocean, she has a series of books out there. Um, uh, actually, uh, quite a few that I haven't read as I come to find uh, out now. Um, but there is a lot that can be learned through her work, and uh, I found it quite easy to understand. I don't come from a scientific background, so I have to indulge in approaching things in a way that I can understand them. I'm happy to make the effort, but I must say that with Susan Casey, the reading is uh, accessible in my case. And here's the article that came out in the New York Times a few days ago. Obsessed with the ocean, Susan Casey takes the plunge. Susan Casey has long been enchanted by the deep ocean. For her book, The Underworld, she finally got to visit that unforgiving landscape herself. This was authored by Alexandra Alter in the New York Times. Some writers go to the ends of the earth in pursuit of a great story. Susan Casey went to the bottom of the ocean. While researching her new book, The Underworld, about the otherworldly inhabitants of the deep ocean and the explorers and scientists who are surveying these uncharted depths, Casey ventured down in deep-sea submersibles, visiting eerie alien landscapes that no humans had ever seen. The deep sea makes up more than 90% of Earth's biosphere, yet stunningly like little, stunningly little is known about it. That's starting to change. With new technology like smart drones that are mapping the ocean floor, and with expeditions in cutting-edge submersibles by private explorers like the director James Cameron, and the private equity investor Victor Vescova, who set a new world record when he reached the deepest point of the Mariana Trench, some 36,000 feet below the surface. Casey became fascinated by the deep ocean while visiting the Farallon Islands, an archipelago some 30 miles from San Francisco Bay, where she was researching great white sharks for her 2005 book, the devil's teeth. It started to occur to me that there was this parallel university universe right beneath the surface, she said. What's down there? What's going on? What don't we see? Her deep sea adventures were exhilarating and occasionally harrowing. On a dive, Casey and Vescovo plunged more than 5,000 meters to explore the ecosystem at the base of an underwater volcano in Hawaii where they saw carpets of neon orange microbes and navigated a maze of lava formations. During a trip to the bottom in the Bahamas, Casey panicked briefly when the submersible's pilot noticed water around their feet, 
and tasted it to determine if the water was fresh from condensation or salty from a leak. It was fresh, and they continued exploring, flying over dunes of snow-white silt. In a phone interview from her landlocked home in the Hudson Valley, Casey spoke about the most awe-inspiring life form on the planet, how the recent tragic accident involving the Ocean Gate submersible could impact deep-sea expeditions, and why deep-sea mining poses an unfathomable threat to the planet. Below are edited excerpts from the conversation. Given how massive and important it is, why do you think we've paid so little attention to the deep ocean? For the longest time, there was this sense of, it's this barren, lifeless place. It's dark. The pressures are pretty insane as you get deeper. How could anything live there? It took a really long time for people to understand that there is life throughout the entire water column. When you hit the seafloor, there's a whole other ecosystem that extends even below the seafloor. So this vast, vast majority of our world is down there in the dark. But as far as funding for research, that's a very good question. I don't understand it at all. I'm really hopeful that that will change for the better. It's starting to dawn on people that this is the major part of our world. It's the engine that drives the climate cycle. It basically is where 90% of the Earth's microbial life is. There is a lot that we will need to know about how the planet works as a whole in order to be able to survive this next period of intense change. You write with alarm about companies' plans to extract minerals from the seafloor. What are the risks? It would be destroying an ecosystem before we even know what we have lost. Scientists are racing to research the area that will be affected first, which is called the Charion Clipperton. Let me repeat that. Clarion Clipperton Zone, the area of the Pacific between Mexico and Hawaii, a vast area that's like 2 million square miles. Every time they go out there and sample a tiny area, they come back with specimens, and 92% of them are new species. In the microbial realm, they are finding hundreds of thousands of creatures like microorganisms that are not only new species, they're like new branches on the tree of life. These are microbes that have figured out how to survive over hundreds of millions of years in an incredibly harsh environment. Those compounds will lend themselves to us learning a lot about resilience. That is probably where the answers lie to really intractable problems like antibiotic-resistant drugs. We have just scratched the surface on this. While you were researching this book, there were big leaps in exploration. Do you think that progress will continue, especially in the wake of the Titan disaster? I think it will absolutely continue. We've just gone through this collective trauma of watching the Titan submersible implode. But it's really important that people understand that that submersible has nothing in common whatsoever with the machines that I'm writing about and the machines that I dived in. Manned submersibles have the most impeccable safety record of any mode of transportation in the world's riskiest environment. 
So that shows how seriously that is taken. OceanGate did not take that seriously. Um, did you hear about OceanGate while researching the book? Um, I was aware of OceanGate. I had a friend who was the chief pilot of the University of Hawaii's deep sea submersibles and ran the Hawaii undersea research lab. He told me a lot about other things that have come out. So I was aware of it and had steered very clear of it. You'll notice there's no mention of OceanGate in my book, although all other organizations that deal with the deep ocean are in my book. It seemed like many people in the field raised alarms about the risks the company was taking. Everybody tried their hardest. There's a limit to what you can do. Technically, there's no law against what he was doing. I hope that changes. Part of the arc of this book has you going from understanding the vastness of the deep ocean intellectually to being physically immersed in it. What was it like to be in that environment? Unlike space, you're surrounded by life. The deepest dive I did, well, we fell for maybe two and a half hours. You just get a sense of we're just in one little tiny spot and you get a more visceral sense of the immensity of it. Um, what's the strangest deep sea creature? A haddle snailfish is the coolest animal. It's the deepest fish in the world. They've sighted them at almost 30,000 feet. I call it a pink gummy bear. It's gelatinous. It has a skeleton, but the bones are demineralized. So the skeleton is soft. Its skull doesn't close. It has two mouths. They have this little smile and these little black eyes. They look like they're just having the time of their lives. When researchers bring them to the service, they have to be super careful because snailfish need to, the pressure to maintain their body form. I did see a specimen and it was in a baggie. It was like liquid. You use an evocative phrase to describe life at the very bottom of the ocean. Intraterrestrial life. What's happening under the seafloor? The seafloor and the ocean crust, and even deeper, it's not solid. It's got fissures and little tiny fractured aquifers, aquifers. So there's microbial life that extends far beneath the seabed. Archaea are the oldest. They found these archaea existing in places that they really didn't think any life should be able to exist, at temperatures far higher than it should be able to survive in poisonous chemical environments where it didn't seem like anything should be able to survive. There's nothing that I could read about microbes that would shock me. They're just extraordinary. They run this planet. That's the end of that um, article on, <clears throat> sorry, on Susan Casey. And I think that uh, the work of the interview person and the article writer, Alexandra Alter, is magnificent. It's absolutely captured the, um, the, the great enthusiasm and passion and commitment to the ocean in a way that's respectful. Um, that passage on explaining the seabed as not this inert form and full of life, 
has been uh, transcribed and great work for, for, um, from a journalistic point of view. Well done, Alexandra Alter. I am, um, obviously, I, I, when I read this, I'm thinking, where am I going to get to purchase this book? Because <laughs> the wave was great, but this one seems to be the 2023 version of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, the book that suddenly puts to pictures what film has not been able to. This is pretty much how this book is feeling right now. So, until the next recording, thank you for listening to the Ocean Matters podcast. Speak to you soon. Bye for now.